Well, why don't we take some time together and open up to the Beatitudes again, Matthew chapter 5, as we continue our study there in the Word of God, Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at the Beatitude this morning in verse 8, one that is pretty well known, pretty popular. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's been one of the real popular Beatitudes over the generations. In fact, it might be the most popular, the most best known of all the Beatitudes because of the rich history that it has within Christian churches and Christian monastic movements and various things through the generations that have, have uh, led people just so very much to want to see God. And of course, there's good reason for that, isn't there? Now, I want to contrast that because after all, this is Oscar season. I want to contrast that with the world. And uh, for those of you who will, uh, are masochists and who will watch that this evening, um, I, uh, I, I think about, boy, what are the things we're going to hear? Well, of course, we're going to hear all kinds of interesting and, and certain things. But I wonder how many people we're going to hear tonight say that, you know, you, they followed their dreams. Or, and then, obviously, the flip side of that is that you, you, you would really be wise if you followed your dreams, followed your heart. Uh, entertainers sing about it. Uh, Disney makes millions off of it. Movies are written about how good it is to follow your dreams. Books are written about it. There's a whole uh, entertainment genre out there telling us that you need to follow your heart. You need to follow your dreams. And so we could take this beatitude and let's give it a worldly update 2.0. And instead of it saying, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see need. How about this one? Blessed are those who follow their heart for they shall attain their dreams. How about that one? That was kind of make it a little bit more in line with Beyonce, don't you think? Well, as she uh, loses her canon. But I think the, the reality is, is that you, you kind of come into such a conflict with the way the world talks and thinks when you kind of dig into this beatitude here. Sure enough, we certainly ought to work hard to attain worthy goals. But if you follow your heart, the worst thing about following your heart is this, that if you follow your heart, you will never, ever see God. You'll spiritually fail instead of spiritually succeed. You might, in this world, reach your goals. It's a possibility. If you follow your dreams, you might be one of the very few who actually attain to your goals. Not typical, but, but you might. But you will not see God. And um, that would be the greatest tragedy of all. So Jesus here is not saying, follow your heart. He's saying, purify your heart. <clears throat> now, the world also tells you that success, spiritual success, kind of just success in life in general is laughter and mirth and partying. That's what, that's what jazzes people, and that's what's important. And, and yet, the most successful man ever, when he was living... He cried frequently at the tomb of a friend. Yet he raised the friend from the dead. He looked out over Israel. Over, over the, the, he was on the Mount of Olives, and he looks out over Israel, and he weeps for the reality of what he knows is coming to his own beloved people. Or there's a time when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
And he's weeping, and he's even to such an agonizing extent that there are drops of blood flowing out of his head. Hematrodosis is what the medical term is. Yet in the Gospels, you read them, they're all eyewitness accounts. Even the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke are eyewitness accounts because Mark was from Peter, and Luke was, he tells you at the beginning of his gospel how he went back to all the original people who saw the miracles, heard the teachings of Jesus. So all four gospels are original accounts. And there isn't one single account of Jesus in all the gospels. Here's the most successful man ever. There's never one account of him laughing. There's accounts of him having joy. But there's never one of him snickering, smirking, laughing, cajoling, chuckling, and anything, which really makes him different from the rest of us, because that's so important to us. And it's kind of considered so important, especially in our slap, happy, let me say it, shallow culture, tends to be, that laughing is kind of the mark of success. If you get people to laugh, or if people laugh with you, or if you're laughing even in the face of adversity, you're pretty successful. So here you have the man who is actually the epitome of success, Jesus Christ, dies in his flesh and rose from the dead to see God. That's the epitome of success. But to listen to the stars of this world prophesy your success in this world, they will never tell you that. And they'll never tell you that all the dreams that are birthed here on earth end in dirt, about six feet of it, with the worms. But To be resurrected, to see God, then even life's tears are blessed. So if the ultimate spiritual success, resurrection out of death, demands that even we walk a trail of tears through our life here, then let's cry a river, okay? Because resurrection is okay. Resurrection is better than temporary laughter. Because really, in heaven, there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. There will be no more tears. But rather, whatever the heavenly uh, comparison to laughing would be, and maybe it's filled with laughter or joy, but whatever the, the, the flip side of laughter is when it's sanctified through resurrection, that'll be eternal And so maybe you could say, well, he who laughs last does laugh best when you talk about resurrection. You know, even if life is a series of days of tears for you in the Lord, can I just encourage you with Matthew 5-4? It's right in your lap if you've got your Bibles opened. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let me just encourage you with that. If God has given you a season or a time of life of mourning, it's okay. It doesn't mean that you're not successful spiritually. In fact, it may mean that you're very, very successful spiritually, that you mourn over many, many things, including, of course, the reality of sin in your own life. Okay, we're going to take this beatitude this morning, and we're going to break it into those three familiar parts that we've been doing as we've been going through each one. We're going to look together at the promise, the condition, and the group, but first we're going to start like we did last week with the very end, the promise. And, of course, the promise in verse 8 is they shall see God. That's the promise. Now, there is a whole category of Christian thinking, writing, devotions, sermons on this 
very topic of seeing God. And for good reason. Because there, there can be nothing greater for any created being, angelic, demonic, or human, than to see God. There can be nothing greater. I love the fact that Jesus in the Beatitudes just puts it into such a short, pithy little phrase, they shall see God. Well, when he does that, he attaches into something that is profoundly important to you, just absolutely critical to you. There could be nothing more important to you than to see God. There's even words for this. It's been called the sunum bonum. That's a Latin phrase for the highest of the high. Uh, It's also called the beatific vision. Maybe you've heard it called that, to be able to see God. There's nothing higher. There's nothing more glorious. To see God is worth everything. Revelation 22 says this, there will no longer be any curse, talking about the end times, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. So let's talk about, let's talk about it a little bit, okay? We're going to go back in verse. If you want to go ahead and stick a finger in Matthew chapter 5 or a piece of paper or your kid's finger in Matthew chapter 5, see if he leaves it there. But we're going to go back to Exodus chapter 33. So the second book of the Bible, Exodus and chapter 33. Chapter 33. I want you to go there as we begin to talk about <coughs> seeing God. In the book of Exodus, by now, God has taken the people of Israel through the Red Sea, delivered them out of Egypt. They are now in the Promised Land, and He is in the process of instructing them in all of His holy ways. But, as Israel will always do, they are being disobedient. They are hard-hearted. Chapter 32 is about one of their greatest failures ever, the episode with the golden calf where they made a false idol, bowed down and worshipped it, and God struck them, many of them, dead. And Moses is now in a place of of great searching and agony over the whole event of the kind of people that he is supposed to lead. Now, in verse 7 of Exodus 33, it says this, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. It came about, whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of the tent, of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, All the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. So it's giving you over and over again the reality that every day there was kind of this extrapolated worship service going on vicariously where you could worship the Lord through Moses. And Moses would go in and there would even be the kind of the Shekinah glory as the pillar of cloud would be at the kind of blocking the the doorway to the tent that Moses would have lifted up the flap, got in, pillar pillar of cloud comes down, there's no way anybody else can get in, there's not even any way that Moses can get out, 
God, so to speak, is standing there in his pillar of cloud, Shekinah glory. And Moses and God speak together in the tent face-to-face about everything that's on Moses' heart, whatever God wants to communicate to him. It's an intimate relationship, but it's one that the people can only have at a distance, vicariously. And, And in that time, the text goes on to tell us that Moses begs God that, please, God, be with me as I lead this people. Because God had just struck down a whole lot of people at the incident of the golden calf. And if you drop down to verse 17, you'll see the Lord agrees to Moses' request. The Lord said to Moses, verse 17, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, And will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. This is the great reality then of the true and the living God. Can not be seen. Notice how God protects his own glory. He's he's going to agree to Moses' request. I will go with the people, but I will go in the manner by which of my own choosing. I won't go in the manner. I mean, obviously, if you read into this, you know that the Lord is reading Moses' heart. What does Moses want most of all? God, show yourself to this people, and then they'll obey. And God is like, I can't do that. For if anyone sees me, he or she must instantly die. No man can see me and live. This is the great reality of biblical revelation. In First John, it says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. First Timothy 6.16 says this, God alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. I want to show you this also. Go to John chapter 1 in the New Testament. John chapter 1 in the New Testament. A few books past Matthew. John chapter 1. In John chapter 1 verse 1, we begin to get into this element of who sees God. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The little phrase in the middle, the Word was with God, does not suggest the idea of being alongside of one another, kind of as we, as we get the idea, maybe if you've heard the teaching, the Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside, He's the comforter. No, this is a different kind of a language here. This is a direct language. The words that are used there in the original language refer to face-to-face relationship. So the idea then that the Word was God was that Jesus, the Word, was face-to-face with God. The Father and Jesus are face-to-face, eye-to-eye, nose-to-nose. That's the kind of the anthropological nature of it. Of course, God doesn't have eyes, nose, face, and so on. It's put in language that you and I can relate to. Everything about God, then, is open to Jesus. Everything about Jesus is open to God. 
And obviously then he is equal with God because he goes on in verse 1 and says the Word was God. Drop your eyes down to verse 14. It continues. And the Word, this is Jesus, communication from God, became flesh. That's the incarnation. He became one of us and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Here it is. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God could be seen after he, in the second member of the Trinity, incarnated himself, enrobed himself, adopted human flesh, took full human flesh to himself so that he was fully God, fully man, the hypostatic union, what we call. But we saw God in human flesh. That is exactly what the writer is saying here. We saw his glory. It's profound, rich words. Look at verse 15. John testified about him, that would be John the Baptist, and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Well, John was born six months before Jesus. So obviously he's referring to his pre-temporal reality. Jesus Christ is eternal. Verse 16, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Wow, this is holy ground. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, O holy mystery of holy mysteries, Jesus Christ, the begotten of the Father, eternally begotten. Begotten, not created. Begotten, not made. Eternally begotten in the bosom of the Father, he has come down, adopted human flesh, and has explained God. But just because he's done that, don't imagine somehow that you get to see him. The writer is very clear at the beginning of verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. By the way, keep this in mind because there's always men and women on the internet, churches rallies, events, talking about how they saw God. God gave them this. God told them this and everything like that. Just remember this, okay? The apostle says, no one has seen God. Wow. We'll go back to Matthew 5.8. Now I think we have it set in our heads that there's no one on earth who has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. I think we've got that down now. So when we say in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, when Jesus teaches that and promises they shall see God, He puts out before you the greatest promise that actually could ever, ever be. You, yourself, with eyes, in a body, you, with your soul, intact, You seeing God, something that is impossible for any person on earth. The question that immediately becomes from this, well then, what kind of a seeing is this? Is this a spiritual seeing of God where kind of in this life you, you, so to speak, you you kind of spiritually sort of see Him? Or is this referring to the seeing of God in resurrection, a full physical seeing, just as you see each other and see me. There's a lot of writing through the ages that argues that this is referring to a seeing of God in the here and now, a spiritual seeing of God. The idea is like, if your heart 
is pure, because blessed are the pure in heart, then you see God in nature. You see God in babies being born. I can tell you that's almost true. You see God in acts of mercy. You see God in truth, in mathematics, in logic. You might see it when people are merciful to the poor. Sort of a Brother Lawrence, you know, quietistic approach. His book, um, The Practice of the Presence of God, has been a big seller ever since it was written in the 1400s. Many thousands of Christians have followed this approach, actually from the very beginning, and have become monks and nuns by wanting so much to make their heart pure so that in this life they'll see God, and then, of course, in the next they'll get resurrection. But I take this verse as a promise of resurrection. I think that if Jesus meant to refer to a spiritual type of seeing, kind of like you see something beautiful, you see even philosophically the beautiful, then somehow you can interpret that to be God. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think there would have to be something in the text that would tell you this because God very clearly says in the Word of God that you can't see him. So if we're going to say, okay, well, I'm going to spiritually see him, I think there needs to be something very clear in the text that would say he's talking about some other kind of seeing of God. Lacking that, then, I argue that this is actually referring to physically seeing God. The verb is horao. It's the most common verb in the New Testament for seeing, and there's a lot of them. And it almost always, like 99% of the time, means physical seeing, not a spiritual seeing, the idea of kind of a perception. No, it's not that. It's the same verb that's used in Hebrews 12:14, which is a companion, parallel verse to this one, which says, Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Same verb. To see the Lord in that passage, one must be holy. The idea of holiness there being unmixed, undivided, pure. The idea being not that you have many gods, but that you only have one God. You are not a mixed heart. You are not a divided heart. There is one God for you and only one God for you. It is the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, revealed to you in the pages of sacred Scripture. I actually think the meaning here is so simple that even a child understands it. You see God. And it isn't see God from a distance, like he's watching us from a distance, you know. And it isn't like I'm a spectator, like I'm in a movie theater, and there's God up on stage, and I'm with everybody else, and we're just watching. No, I don't think that's what's going on either. It's a personal seeing. It's your eyes connecting with God. And obviously here, vice versa, there is a mutual recognition as you see God. He is my God. And God says, you are my child. With each of the three members of the Trinity, how stunning this is. You and I were made to enter into the audience chamber of God. And this, and nothing less, is the reason for why you were created. This is why God made us. God made us that He would have the pleasure of redeeming us, 
the measure of redeeming us by grace, by sheer kindness, drawing us to himself, calling us, enabling us to walk with him in this life, and then promising us that upon death, a moment of death, we enter immediately into his presence upon which we see God. The Old Testament saints heard of these things as if in a whisper in the wind blowing through the trees on a windy Sunday morning that the promises of God about resurrection were true, but we have them enfleshed in Jesus Christ and inscribed in the sacred and holy pages of Scripture so that we can see this and realize when Jesus taught this, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. This was his goal, not only, for, of course, for himself, but for all those hearing him. What a shame it would be to gain the world and to lose your soul. A shame it would be. A shame it would be to gain a secret lover and lose your soul. Or to gain another drink and to lose your soul. When you were created for such noble things, such lofty things, such permanent things, such important things, such eternal things, such glorious things, is to see God. It's to see God. And I want to bring out this to you as well. The word they at the end there is emphatic in the original language, and so it means they and they alone shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they and they alone shall see God. Wonderful. You know, there are people kind of making our way into the next point. There are people who always are out there telling, well, life is a school, you know, or life is a test. They're wrong. They don't know that. Who are they to define life? Other people talk about life as a preparation. But what could ever prepare you for seeing God? And so that really gets into our next point where we want to talk about the group. What is it that prepares us for seeing God? Well, let us prepare to see God by being pure in heart. Again, direct your eyes back to verse 8. The group are the pure in heart. That is the group that Jesus refers to here. And please note, it is in the plural. It's not the individual he's talking about here who's the pure in heart individual. He's talking about a group that are the pure in heart. It's been that way through every single one of the Beatitudes. They're never individualistic. And so for us to properly understand them, while we want to apply the text to us, we want to interpret it according to the way it was actually written, which is this way. Blessed are the group who are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's a group together that sees God, not an isolated monk living in a cell praying. Although, although I'm highly sympathetic to the mother who wishes that she could get away for about two days in a cell to just go pray and get away from everything that's going on. I'm highly sympathetic to that. I understand for many of you the desire, oh, if I could just be a monk for a while. Man, how awesome that would be. I understand. I get that. I really do. I get that. But definitely not for a lifetime. Definitely not for a vocation. 
The idea of going off on your own and being your own person means that you really never could, if you were, especially if you were motivated by verse 8. Oh, I want to be pure in heart. I want to see God. I've got to go off. I've got to go purify my heart. I've got to go off in my cell. I've got to get my prayer books. I've got to get my other books. I've got to get my life in order. I've got to deal with these sins. I've got to deal with my heart. You miss the very language of the text itself that is supposed to teach you. It's a group. It's not by yourself. By the way, this is highly challenging to us who are Westerners. Oh, we are so individualized as Westerners. This was written to an Eastern culture, beloved. They were sitting on the Sea of Galilee. They weren't sitting outside of Washington, D.C. They weren't sitting on the Seine in Paris. This was written to people who were communal people who didn't really think about the individual first. They thought about community first. And there's a good reality to why that is, because the fact is that Christ came and died for a people, not just a collected sortion of individuals. He actually had a bigger plan. He's pulling together a body of individuals that are according to his purpose. Great theological truth. But let me just put it this way very simply for you. This is a communal issue here. The idea that I'm preaching to you and to nobody else is ridiculous. I'm preaching to you collectively, right? Am I not? The idea would be then that your maturity and your growth in the pure in heart <coughs> that time of year. The reality is, is that God weaves you together with each other so that you will know each other, so that you will help each other to become pure in heart. If you were to walk away from the sermon this morning and say, well, boy, I'm, I'm really not pure in heart. I got to go home and I got to make myself pure in heart. You would miss actually the words of Jesus here. You really would. You'd be thinking, well, I got to go make it happen by myself. That is not what he is teaching. It is a group. And so it is through all the Beatitudes. I wish I had emphasized it even more in the previous Beatitudes because it goes so contrary to the vast majority of biblical interpretation and biblical application that we hear. But it's critical to understanding just what exactly Jesus is teaching. The word pure uh, is the word katharos. Katharos, it's the word we get the name Catherine from. It means pure in that sense. Uh, it, the idea of, of unmixed, just a single alloy or something that is clean. Uh, that has the idea then of becoming someone who is single of purpose, having a, a single mind. So that purity of heart comes to mean having a singular affection for God above all others. The idea is that there is a, a, a singularity, a simplicity, that kind of God and God alone. He is my God. I have no other. The word was used to describe metals that had been subjected to the burning heat of a fiery forge over and over again until all the impurities are burned out of the steel, and thus it came to mean unmixed, unalloyed. Jesus illustrated this kind of purity. Go over to a couple pages to Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. Jesus illustrated this kind of Singleness of heart, singleness of mind, singleness of eye. 
Look at Matthew 6.22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, the eye being single, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your body is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What are you talking about? Well, he explains it in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. My version has the word wealth, but mammon is broader than wealth. You can't have two masters. You only have one master, Jesus is teaching. That's the great reality. And the person who tries to serve more than one master is miserable till the day he dies and then long after. Back to verse 8, Matthew 5, 8. The pure heart, then, that he's talking about is a heart focused on a pure object. But idolatry clouds your heart. And idolatry makes you serve multiple masters. So what does the pure in heart person do? Repent. Turn away in grief from serving all the other idols that are served in life. To be pure in heart is to have God as your only worship and to repent from all other gods that you serve. This is nothing other than what Jesus taught. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's taken from the great Hebrew prayer given in the book of Deuteronomy, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Why? Because the tendency of Israelites and the tendency of all of us is to have other gods. We, we will take the God of the Bible, but not exclusively. Not isolate and have no others. This is the tendency of humanity from the very beginning. God says, you shall not take the fruit of the tree. We go, there's a lot of trees out there. Why would you limit me? You must not love me. You must not care for me. There's fun over there. That stuff tastes good. It looks beautiful. Why would you limit me? Why would you, why would you constrain my freedom? Do you not love me? And our heart will just bubble up and percolate up and fill our minds with all kinds of reasons as to why God should not be served individually and isolatedly. He's probably cruel. He's probably doesn't have my very best interest at heart. I do. And so we are taken away so very quickly. You should pray for an undivided heart, just like believers have done for century upon century per century. Give me an undivided heart. God alone shall be my God. This God alone. There will be no others. Not the stuff that percolates up in my heart. Not the stuff I hear on TV. I have one God and only one God. Every usurper that enters into the throne room of my heart, tempting me, teasing me, wanting me to succumb and submit 
to it, I must deal with it as ruthlessly as the Canaanites were dealt with by Israel. Extermination. Some have read this beatitude and misunderstood it to be teaching sincerity. Sincerity. The idea is kind of emotional sincerity. Blessed are who's the ones whose heart is authentic. It's, it's emotionally sincere. You'll most often hear this in kind of the teenage question. Teenagers, you'll know what I'm talking about. Would God want me doing this if it went against my feelings? Would he want me to be inauthentic? Wouldn't he want me to be true to myself? That would be the idea then of what we're talking about. So being pure in heart really becomes meaning sincere in heart. As long as you're true to yourself, then you are fulfilling the idea of what Jesus talked about when you're pure in heart. This is rife, rife in churches. The idea is that the the pure in heart are those who are true to themselves. You say, well, this is how God has made me. I'm just being true to myself. So I have, uh, I'm attracted to the same sex. This is how God has made me. And so I just need to be open and honest with what I am. So it's kind of this, above all else, be true to thine own self kind of morality. But all it is is having a singleness of heart for self, not for the Lord. The idea would be that it's the self-actualized person who gets at the end to see the most, most self-actualized person, God, as if this is what life is all about. It's about somehow getting in touch with who you really are, down deep, no matter you can define your own sexual identity, and you can tell everybody else that's what my gender is. And woe to them if they disagree. I define for myself by my own authenticity what I am. And I have far more authenticity, so the story goes, than you do, as long as I'm true to myself. But there's nobody, absolutely nobody, to whom the command of God comes and the heart says, Oh, yes, thank you so much for telling me to repent of my gods. That's always painful. That's always contrary to our will, always contrary to our feelings. Emotional security is no marker of reality. I could, have, I, could have, I could be very authentic and tell you that it's been my heart's dream ever since I was a little child that I would be able to one day race a horse in the Kentucky Derby as a jockey. It doesn't matter how sincere I am. God in his wisdom has not made horses to carry guys like me at any speed whatsoever. Religious sincerity is another form of this. It, it, it will do things to people, religious sincerity to their religious ideals that are so sad. Have you ever seen the pictures and the videos of the old people climbing that steps, climbing on their knees in Rome, all these hundred, somewhat many steps, their knees bleeding and bruised, 
And if they get to the top step, then the Virgin Mary will give them some special dispensation of forgiving grace in, their, in life. And the religious sincerity, it, they're so abused. It's religious abuse is what it is. There, there's no necessary goodness to sincerity unless it's a sincerity that is sincere to God is my God. Not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Sincerity ends up twisting this beatitude, making a struggling Christian think he has to get his heart pure before God will forgive him. Oh, I've got to make my heart pure. I've got to make my heart pure. I've got to get really sincere. Meanwhile, you know, he's sincere for the next 28 seconds or something like that. Sincere at least as he thinks it has to be sincere. All the reconstructions then of this beatitude twisted into a platitude, and it makes it say this, Blessed are the sincere in heart, for they will be rewarded by God. It's no good. It's just another morality play. 17th century preacher Thomas Watson said, quote, Morality can drown a man as fast as vice. He also said this, An ocean vessel can sink just as fast with a load of gold as it can with a load of dung. Solomon writes in Proverbs 4.23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Solomon speaks of your deepest depths, your heart. One of my professors called it the command and control center of your life. That's a military analogy where a battleship will have a command and control center. Your heart is your command and control center from where everything flows out, your intellectual thoughts, your emotions, your volitional drives. Why you do what you do comes out of your heart. What are your motivations? What are your goals? Your heart in you leads the way. Your heart in you, it's proof positive you were created by God, beloved. Your heart in you is a sacred spot inside of you that everything else that's a part of you submits to. Everything you are, everything you do, flows out of your heart. Your loves, your hates. Listen carefully when I say this. Both, of, both your idolatries and your worships of the living and true God flow out of your heart. Apart from Christ, the Bible teaches that your heart is the source of your spiritual pollution. book of Genesis, when God was explaining why he was going to bring the flood on all humanity... Moses writes, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and the, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Here you live in a world where everybody telling you to follow and trust your heart. Go with what your heart tells you. But God says in the book of Jeremiah, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus understood this perfectly well. In Matthew chapter 15, he said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. You want to follow that which defiles you, you will be eternally defiled. And, and this is the ultimate problem then with this beatitude, because only the pure in heart will see God, they and they alone. We need a new heart. And thankfully, that is exactly what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. <laughs> the gospel of Jesus Christ is not 
go out and figure out how to get pure in heart so you can see God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is you can't be pure in heart. By nature, you're an idolater. Ah, but there's a full solution for the depth of your spiritual problem. Jesus Christ came and God punished him in your place. Though he was absolutely holy and never broke the commandment, always had God to be his God. Though yet God is willing to forgive you and to take the punishment, do your idolatries and your sins and your fornications and your misbehaviors and your evil heart and to take all of your sin and his wrath against it and transfer it over to Jesus Christ out of love for you. Out of condescending, gracious, compassionate, pitiful love for you. And in you trusting in that, what God did with Jesus Christ on the cross and arising him out of the dead promises forgiveness and promises a new heart. A new heart that has the power to be pure in heart. One God and one God only. This God and no others. So, this is the answer to the great problem Well, what is the pure in heart person? Well, he ruthlessly deals with the idols in his heart. His heart wants God. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. Okay, well, that's the group. The group is the pure in heart. Last, we're going to cover the condition, and that's the first words of this verse. Blessed are Blessed are. We talked about blessed all through these weeks as being spiritually successful. So you could say, spiritually successful are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, that one really works easily, doesn't it, then? Because obviously, if you're spiritually successful, you're going to see God. Spiritual success, friends, is what the Beatitudes are all about. There's no spiritual success if you aren't resurrected after you die. Every single Beatitude starts the same way. Blessed. After a while, it starts to become a cadence in your ear. You hear it, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. They are wooing you. They are cajoling you. They are inviting you to come into them. And because blessed begins each beatitude, therefore now you begin to see it is emphatic. It is to say, richly blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Richly blessed, richly blessed, richly blessed. Jesus then in the beatitudes is laying out a path of blessing. You'll be richly blessed. You'll be truly happy. You will be genuinely successful. Your life and your destiny are spiritual success. <coughs> but what is it then that actually forms the blessedness of being pure in heart? How does someone grow as a believer in being pure in heart? And it simply is the blessedness of the prior verse. Verse 7 Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As your heart is more and more characterized by mercy, something very painful begins to happen. Over and over again, you discover because you are being merciful to people and because you are also seeing your heart and not wanting to be merciful to those who hurt you, that you have all kinds of idols set up in your heart that you bow down to on a regular basis every day. Whenever it is that you do not treat people with mercy, 
It reveals that you have a different God than Jesus Christ. As the standard of how to treat people becomes mercy rather than judgment, you realize just how self-righteous and judgmental you really are. How critical of others, your spouse, other Christians, your boss, co-workers, so very deeply critical. That's why John Calvin wrote, the heart is an idol factory. Every one of us from our mother's womb is an expert in inventing idols. You begin to discover as a rule that, as I said last week, this, this verse 7, it starts off like a chocolate. It ends up like you're biting into a habanero. This, this beatitude in verse 7 tells you that you find out that you really don't by nature treat people with mercy. You treat them with judgment especially to people who don't treat you with mercy. And your heart bubbles up, percolates up reasons quickly, quickly, quickly as to why you are right to withhold mercy from that person. And at first it sounds like a small crime. If it's even a crime at all, withholding mercy, come on. Nobody even notices. But it's the very soul of sin itself, for it is the replacement of God with self by demanding mercy from others and judging them in your own heart when they don't give you mercy when you want it. You live out the worst of all sins, the sin by which Lucifer fell, just as Satan wanted God replaced with himself so that Lucifer could judge all flesh. So we take it to ourselves and arrogate to ourselves the powers to judge and to put others down underneath us. I will not treat that person with mercy. And if you research that one out in your heart, beloved, you'll come to the same conclusion every time I refuse to be merciful because I bow down and serve the idols of my heart. And this is brutally painful, spiritually, spiritually painful. So what is a pure in heart person to do? What is a person like yourself, I hope, committed foundationally to the one true God Jesus is saying here, you are blessed as you turn away from your idols. That's purity of heart. Come back. Be pure in heart. Have one God, the God of the Beatitudes. Don't be the judge of the human race out there, okay? Don't be the judge of the human race. There's somebody a lot more qualified than you to do that. Be merciful. And you will discover the idols of your heart. Well, that's a very heavy message. I realize that. I realize spiritually that is a burden of immense proportions. I really do. And I would say this, that to be spiritually successful, you would have to, and I will have to, look at all the occasions of my heart where I am not merciful with people and be pretty ruthless with myself and say, why? Why was I not merciful? Instead of allowing myself reasons and excuses as to why to just ignore it, why to just move on to something else. No. Why was I that way? And you will discover, if you trace it back within your own thinking, that there was an idol that you bowed down to. It will hurt. But then next, because you are this kind of Christian You will repent from that, and you will turn to God, and He will flood your soul with joy and with peace and with comfort. 
you will be changed. You will be the pure in heart. And you can be sure that just as you have in this life served God and God only, so you can be sure that when this life is done, you will see God. And I leave you with the words of a hymn, just a few words. Jonathan, John Newton wrote this hymn, not as well known, but I'm just going to give you a couple verses of it just so it can leave you with a fragrant taste. It's called, Thou Art Coming to a King. It's talking about prayer. It says this, Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. For he himself has bid thee pray, therefore will not say thee nay, therefore will not say thee nay. He will not say no. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. None can ever ask too much. And Father in heaven, we come with great petitions to bring great, great things inside our souls. Oh, to see you, to gaze upon you and never have to turn away, to see you in your glory. Certainly, no human tongue can tell. But oh, what glories, oh, what rapture. And whatever joys and glories we might have at the very first sight of thee will be small and insignificant compared to the ones that we shall have a year from then. And those in turn, small and very insignificant from those 10,000 years hence. And those, most small, a million years from then. And so shall it ever be through all eternity that seeing you will not merely be a static sight, but something exceedingly dynamic. So therefore, teach us in the days of our flesh, in the days of our humility now, to purify our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.